The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 9, verses 1 through 13. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Webb. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'll start this way, and I'll ask you just for a moment to be patient with me and let me explain what I'm about to say before you get upset with it or before you assume it bothers you. One of my favorite things about getting to be a pastor is the authority that it gives me. Okay, let me explain that. Not the authority to lord it over people or to control people because that's not within the purview of what I've been called to. Pastors are servants, not lords and masters. But here's the authority that God gives to me every time I open my mouth to speak on his behalf. It's the authority to boldly, explicitly, and repeatedly Tell people how much God enjoys forgiving them, showing up for them, and reassuring them of the hope that's theirs because of Jesus Christ. It's the authority to fight for people's hearts on behalf of the one who calls himself a physician. It's like I'm a nurse and Jesus is the doctor. It's like that. Before this episode that we just heard read to us, Jesus' 
healing tour has already begun. He's cleansed a leper. He has healed a centurion's servant of a, an immobilizing disease. He has helped two blind men to see with their eyes. He has calmed his disciples' fears because of a storm that was around them. And he has uh, comforted and brought healing to two men who were tormented by evil forces called demons. And then after the episode that we're about to talk about, he continues his healing tour by raising a dead girl back to life, by tending to uh, a bleeding woman's sickness so that she's not uh, you know, struggling with hemophilia anymore. Uh, and he helps two blind men to see, which I've already said, uh, a, a mute man suddenly can talk, and on and on and on. So it's no wonder that in verse 12, Jesus calls himself a physician. And in front of us, we've got two men who are put in the path of Jesus. One is a, a man who's paralyzed, and his friends, out of loving concern and compassion for him, bring him to Jesus because they know that Jesus alone can do for him what they are unable to do for him, and that's to help him with his suffering. And then right after this, there's a man named Matthew who's a, a tax collector. I'll tell you some of the significance of that in a minute. And he forgives this man of his sin. And this is unexpected. Both acts of, of, of care from Jesus are unexpected by both of these men. Both of them, they walk into their encounters with Jesus vulnerable. Vulnerable to hate their lives, vulnerable to hate themselves because they feel like they are defective, unfinished, contaminated, less than, despised and rejected throwaways for different reasons. They're both at a different kind of low point, and Jesus says to both of them, rise. Very significant word there. And, and throughout this passage, we also get three portraits, which I want to focus on. They're portraits of leadership. And one is what we could call stolen authority. The second is what we could call divine authority. And then the final one is, is what we could call given authority. And so I'd like to just run through uh, all of those things together. First, stolen authority. And, and that's what's demonstrated by, by this group uh, that we know as the scribes and Pharisees. They are uh, the classic first century religious moralists. And one of the things that they do, and this is one of the sure signs that, 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 that you're in the presence of a religious moralist, is that they do not address their concerns directly, but instead they do so through gossip. And so what they do is, instead of going straight to Jesus, the teacher, they go to his followers, his disciples, and, and they, they ask the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus, it says, discerning their thoughts, reading their hearts, said this, hey guys, I'm right here. The one you're talking about, I'm right over here. And then he goes on to say, those who are well have no need for a physician. There's that word. But those who are sick are the ones who need the physician. And then he says, go and learn. To these learned people, he says, go and learn 
what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, that's, that's a direct quotation from the sixth chapter of the prophet Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And, of course, this, was a, this is a, a book of the Old Testament that these scribes and Pharisees would have committed to memory. And, and it's the story about how God says to a husband whose wife has fallen into prostitution, I don't want you to walk away from her. I don't want you to discard her. I want you to pursue her, and I want you to woo her back to marital faithfulness with you by loving her in the face of her infidelity. And in doing this, you are going, Hosea, to become a picture of my relationship with my people who are always wandering, always jumping into the wrong beds when I'm here waiting for them in love. This is what, this is what he, he quotes to the scribes and the Pharisees from their own Bible. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, as in the days of Hosea. And then he says, for I came not to call the righteous, specifically those who think they're righteous, but sinners. You know, every person's greatest need, Jesus is saying, is this. Not to get your act together. That's not your greatest need, to get your act together. Your greatest need is to come to the point of recognition, awareness, and ownership of the fact that you are falling apart. As long as you are not held and kept in the hands of God, you are always disintegrating. Morally, physically, emotionally, in every other way. You know, one of, the, one of the pastors I like to quote um, every now and then is, is Joe Novenson from Chattanooga. And th- this is the quote I, I love to, to pull from, from Joe Novenson, that the defining feeling of faith is not the feeling of strength, but the defining feeling of faith is dependent weakness. You know you are strong in Christ when you are dependent and weak in yourself and leaning on Him for the strength that only He can provide. And you'd think that the scribes and Pharisees would understand this because, you know, their hero, King David, right? They had learned all of his prayers that are written in the Psalms, including the 51st Psalm where King David himself says, you know, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Wash away my transgressions, blot away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, and so on. And yet somehow, Jesus has to look at these biblically literate, learned leaders, and his words to them are, go and learn. This is a direct affront to what the scribes and Pharisees prided themselves on most, and that is that they carried their Bible knowledge and learning like a badge of honor. Look at us, how learned we are, how orthodox we are, how studied we are, how devoted we are. And Jesus says to them, John chapter 5, same crowd, you study the Scriptures diligently because in them you think you have eternal life, but I know you and you've never heard the Father's voice. You know, those of you who are married and, you know, maybe look back to marriage conflict conversations, you ever heard or said these words, you're not hearing me. 
Jesus is saying, you're not hearing. You're not hearing. Prostitutes who have never put their nose in a Bible are hearing better than you are. And you know all the things. You've got your PhDs. And yet this tax collector, this sinner, this paralytic, they are hearing. The fruit for someone who knows God is a heart that is disposed to mercy. The true fruit of someone who knows God is the fruit of humility, the fruit of gratitude, which also leads to the fruit of approachability to any kind of person. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, they, are the, they, they, they have this elitist edge about them. They're not approachable. They come across as distant, proud, condescending, and the effect on the people around them is, is one of two effects. Either the people around them feel anxious and judged because they feel like they can't measure up to the burdens that are being placed upon them, or the people around them are resentful because they can smell it, the self-righteousness, the dogmatism, the holier-than-thouness the willingness to, to throw burdens on people's back but not being willing to lift a finger to help them with those burdens. You know, it's possible to appear virtuous and lack true virtue. I mean, think about Judas, one of the disciples, one of the twelve who walked with Jesus for three years, who preached the gospel, who knew the Bible. People were converted through his ministry. People were healed through his ministry, and he never was converted himself. He never experienced the healing of Christ himself. Oh, he had all the, all the, the Bible ideas in his head, just like the demons. He believed that it was, was all true. He knew it was all true. He understood it was all true, but he wasn't submitted to it. Even the demons believe, the Bible says, and you know, there's nobody who knows the Bible better than you and me, than, 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 than Satan and, and the demons. Even they believe, but they shudder because they're not surrendered. They know what's coming for them. And in the same way, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees elsewhere, you know who your judge is? Moses. The guy that you read, the guy that you immerse your, your, your learnedness, you know, and, and, you know, and invest yourself in, in, in knowing his thoughts, you don't even see how his thoughts condemn you, how the, 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 the writings of Moses are actually a setup to demonstrate to you your needs so that you will plunge into the arms of Jesus. It's what military people call stolen valor. It's actually a federal crime to steal the valor of those who have enlisted and served. And the way you steal the valor is you, you wear the uniform and you wear the medals without ever having enlisted or served so that you can receive the honor and the accolades and the free drinks at the airport and so on. Stolen valor. Jesus put it this way. You're wolves in sheep's clothing. You're hypocrites, which was another word for a stage actor, for, for the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is exposing the fact that, that their ministry, that their religion, it's all religious theater. That's all it is. And so that's stolen authority. If it smells like self-righteousness, if it consistently makes you anxious and afraid, if it consistently feels condescending, or if it, it's starting to stir up some resentment in you, it's probably counterfeit. And so then you have divine authority, and this is the good stuff. 
Divine authority is the stuff that looks, feels, and smells like Jesus. And, and the way that you can, one of the ways that you can tell that, that, that it looks and smells like Jesus is that the same kind of people who were offended by Jesus are offended by it. Scribes, Pharisees, smug, self-righteous, self-assured, condescending, religious folks do not like the gospel. Do not like things like forgiveness and mercy and grace. You don't want to let them off the hook because if you let them off the hook for their sins, we can't control them anymore. That's a threat to our power. That's an assault to our authority, and that's an assault to our better thanness. That's the psychology of it. But the other thing that happens when it looks and smells and feels like Jesus is that sinners, sufferers, and worry warts are drawn toward it like a moth to a flame except that flame makes you alive instead of incinerating you. It is physician-like. And any kind of authority that comes from God feels like healing. You know, Tolkien put it this way, the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. The hands of Jesus, the hands who, of those who rightly minister in his name, are healing hands hands. Jesus, as physician, wants to completely deconstruct the teaching, the posture, the emphases of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he wants to reconstruct faith around three things. Forgiveness for helpless sinners, mercy for helpless sufferers, and hope for helpless worry warts. So let's start first with forgiveness for helpless sinners. I don't know about you, but when I first read this, this account, I was curious as to why Jesus responds to this um, immobilized, physically immobilized man's very clear physical need with something that nobody expects. He looks at him, and he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What? And so the scribes and Pharisees, of course, they look at, at this as an opportunity to, to pounce on Jesus, to try to discredit him. Oh, that's, that's blasphemy, because everybody knows only God can forgive sins. And, and Jesus is like, you guys just walked right into it, didn't you? Only God can forgive sins. I forgive you, son. Jesus is claiming to be God, to have that authority. And then in order to authenticate his words, he says, now that I've told you you're forgiven, you're forgiven I'm going to show you. Rise. Stand up. And this bed that has held and carried you, I want you now to hold and carry it. Go throw it in the dumpster if you want. Go put it in the corner to remind you of the hopelessness that was yours before the physician's hands touched you. But remember that the most powerful touch was not the touch on your body. The most powerful enduring touch was the touch on your heart. You're a forgiven man. 
You know, the famed psychiatrist Carl Menninger says that the greatest need that every human being has is an awareness of having been forgiven. And Jesus sees this. And even Matthew, in this same gospel in chapter 16, quotes Jesus asking a rhetorical question. What will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? And so in a sense, telling this man to rise up bodily and walk is just bonus. His full need had already been met with the pronouncement of forgiveness over a helpless sinner. No one is more aware that the greatest need that ever, any human being has for forgi- is the need of forgiveness than, than Matthew, who wrote this account and who's also a, the subject of the second half of it. You know, it says that Jesus sees Matthew collecting taxes in a booth. Now, Matthew is a tax collector. He's also a Jewish man. And if you were that combination, if you were Jewish and a tax collector, what that meant was to, to your Jewish uh, you know, community, you were both a traitor and a henchman for the authorities of Rome who were systematically stealing from your own people, and you're participating in that. That's, that's the beat on tax collectors. That's why tax collectors were considered despised and rejected, especially by their fellow Jewish neighbors. But what does he say to Matthew, Jesus? Again, an unexpected word, follow me. And like the paralytic, same words are used. Matthew rose. He rose. That's resurrection language. New life, new hope, new future. And, you know, before I move on to the next thought, if there's anybody in here that has even the, the slightest bit of worry, if there's any tender heart in here, who, who wants the things that Jesus provides, who, who rec- you recognize your need, and, and yet you're, you're carrying this load of shame, guilt, regret around with you everywhere you go, and it's like this dark cloud, and you feel like, eh, I, I think I'm exempted from this forgiveness gift. The only people who are left out are the ones who opt out with their pride. The only contempt that God has toward a human being is a contempt toward human pride that says, I don't need you. Like, don't you human beings learn? Go and learn. Remember the garden where, where the man and the woman sought independence of God be, from God because of pride. We'll go our own way. It's pride that will ruin us. But, but, but look at, look at who, who, who gets in. Lest you think your, your guilt and your shame and your regret keep you out, adulterers, murderers, crooks, sex workers, they're in. Because what qualifies you, what makes you fit for God, is your recognition that you are unfit for God. 
All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And, and, and then Jesus says, come on. That's what I came for. And I love the, the lyric from Andrew Peterson where he says, be kind to yourself because you have to learn to love your enemy too. Like we're our own worst enemies. If there ever was a basis for not hating yourself for the things that you regret, it's that Jesus cannot help but love you if you come to him in your need, in your own immobilized state. Secondly, mercy for helpless sufferers. You know, the supreme gift that Jesus gives to this paralyzed man, even more than fresh legs, is fresh hope. Listen to these words. It says that Jesus saw him. He makes eye contact with this man who is so accustomed to everybody when they walk by looking the other way, like the priest and the Levite did in the Good Samaritan parable with the needy man and the hurting man on the side of the road. It says that Jesus spoke to him. He's not used to being spoken to. Again, he's used to being ignored. And Jesus says to him, take heart. And then he receives him. He calls him this, this, these words, my son. You're mine. There's a belonging there. You're a son. You can't sever a son from a parent. There's no way you can do it. Nothing in all creation can separate you from, from this love of mine. Now, I'll circle back in a minute concerning Matthew, but, but here's one thing that Jesus does that's very significant with Matthew. Remember, Matthew is a pariah to the whole community. And what does Jesus do but proceed to eat with Matthew, but not just Matthew, also this entire, you know, flash mob dinner party of Matthew and all of his tax collector friends. And, you know, you can, only, you can just imagine the scribes and Pharisees saying, see, there's no way this could be a prophet of God. There's no way that he could be associated with, with the God that we serve because, because look at him. He's, he's putting himself at the table with, with such contaminated, defective, unfinished, despised, rejected, immoral, injurious crooks. Well, wait a minute. Who's the crook? Let's talk about stolen valor again. Let's talk about how you put yourself in the place of God by trying to control everything and trying to control everyone. Who's the crook here? Jesus receives them. You know, to eat with someone is to accept them as a friend, it's to treat them as an equal, and it's to regard them as family in that culture. It's a weighty thing. So finally... Hope for helpless worry warts. You know, there's a hidden fear that's not spoken in this text, and that's the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. You know, whenever you, whenever you meet somebody who just, they double down in their, their self-righteousness, they double down in their contempt for this group or that group or the other group, they double down, you know, on the blogosphere and on social media or wherever it is they double down. You know that comes from a place of anxiety, that comes from a place of fear. You know, th th this mask of security comes from a place of deep insecurity. Scribes and the Pharisees, they're worried, they're afraid that they're losing ground, that they're losing place, that they're losing their grip. 
You know, there's this other place in the Gospels where the Pharisees are, are conferring together, and one of them says, what are we going to do because the influence of Jesus is going to take from us our place and our nation as if it was ever about us? You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, whose writing they also had access to, tells the truth about life when he says, all success, all esteem, all fame and fortune, all power, it's like vapor. It's like trying to hold on to a ball of smoke and it's just going to slip right through your fingers. You know, last night we, we, we had dinner with some folks uh, who cooked on a smoker. And it was amazing. Every time he lifted up the, you know, the top to check the meat, all the smoke would just... And that's, that's what power and prestige and place in the community... That's what happens, especially when you hang your hat on it, which was their tragedy. If only they had had these wonderful theologians called 38 Special to speak to their wound. Hold on loosely, but don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. And they're losing control because they're clinging too tightly. It's like Jonah says from the belly of the whale, those, <coughs> those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And to fear, what does the Bible say? To worry, what does the Bible say? 365 times exactly in the Bible, the Bible says do not fear, and it gives a reason, because God is with you. And, and, and the other reason is, is tucked away a couple of times in this passage, rise. That's not just what Matthew and the paralyzed man did in, in this event. It's also a signal of what's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns. All of the people of Jesus, weak-hearted, sinner, sufferer, warriors, will rise to, to a strength that they've never known before, strength beyond strength. And that's the hope, that future hope that's been given to carry us through our present day sin, shame, guilt, suffering, sorrow, anxieties, etc. You know, one shining example for us is our friend Johnny Erickson Tata. And she's been in a wheelchair, uh, she's in her 70s now, she's been in a wheelchair since her teenage years because of a diving accident, as many of you know. And um, at some point, she, she found or was found by the, this, this hope, this forgiveness, this mercy, this hope that Christ and Christ alone can, can bring. And the Lord has never invited her to rise and walk. She's still in her wheelchair. He's never invited her to rise and walk yet. And yet she's been awakened through her wound to the forgiveness and the mercy that are hers now and forever in Christ that promise that, 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 that even her body will be mobilized again like it never was before. Here's a Here's a quote that I'd like to hang on to in my worrying seasons from Johnny. And it, it, it has special power and meaning because it comes specifically from her. She says this, 
I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner. Then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I will stand next to my Savior. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And then she says, you know, upon the return of Jesus Christ, when he makes all things new, she says, then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all the earth will join the party. This is just a, a lovely extended way of saying the best is always yet to come. Your glory days, your golden years, they're never behind you. They're always before you. And, 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 and that's what informs the way we live now. You know, there's nothing worse than to live without hope. There's nothing greater than to live in hope. You can have everything the world offers, but if, if you don't live with the hope of Christ, there's going to be an anxiety there. There's going to be an emptiness there. And candidly, if, if, if you don't live your life in Christ and with Christ from your place of need and his eagerness to meet it, I have no hope to offer you. I have no authority to speak any hope into your life if I'm speaking to a person who doesn't sense their own need for Christ. And for me, that's a tragic thing. Because I lived my first 21 years without Christ, and I was a rich, you know, you know well-cared-for, empty young man. You can have everything the world has to offer, to offer and, and, and be without Christ, and you're still going to be searching. Or you can have nothing. You can be stripped of nothing. And with Christ, discern that in some mysterious way, I have everything. The final authority is the given authority, which, which leads us to the table in front of us. You know, the purpose of every charity case that comes to Jesus and he, when he tends to it, is that the charity case would become a charity giver soon enough. And this is why we, we see Matthew opening up his home to as many people as would come. And what he does is he puts together a dinner party. And now in front of us, Jesus is doing the exact same thing for us. It's like a dinner party where, where he is the chef and where he also is mysteriously the feast. He is the nourishment. And where he says to sinners, sufferers, worry warts, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. And if you feel like you're falling apart, this especially qualifies you to come to his table. And Jesus might say to us, you know, if you feel like your life is disintegrating, if you feel like you're falling apart, well, bear in mind that the bread is there because of wheat that was crushed. The, the cup is there because of grapes that were crushed and dismantled. And when you take in the bread and when you take in the cup, it's meant to have the effect of nourishing you back to integration, back to an integrated whole 
under Christ. We remember his death, it says, until he comes.